Lions, Towers, and Shields from the Incomparable Network. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. Welcome back to a discussion of classic film. This is episode 88, Kind Hearts and Coronets. We are talking tonight about an English film from 1949 made by Ealing Studios. The most recognizable presence in it is Alec Guinness, but there are a lot of other really interesting performances. And Alec Guinness is a bunch of people, but there are other actors in it as well, (laughs) which we'll get to. (laughs) Well, there's Alec Guinness. There's Alec Guinness. I have a wonderful panel of guests with me to talk about it, uh, beginning with uh, Eric Ensign. Hello. Welcome back. Good to be here. I have two Doctor Who facts for you related to this movie. Excellent. Uh, that's I, I look forward to those, and I expect you to be on brand. As <laughs> I am what I am. Uh, next up, David J. Lord. Do you have Wild Wild West facts? Well, yes, you do, actually. I have, I have a Wild Wild West fact. I've got a Broadway fact and a BBC radio fact. Actually, two BBC So radio many facts. facts. Uh, Mickey Maynard, I know you have facts. How are you? <laughs> I have facts. Wait a minute. I'm turning a birthday cake into a hat. Um, I have Downton Abbey facts, which Ooh. I'll be happy to share. Ah, Excellent. And also with us, Randy Datinga. I won't ask if you have facts, but if you have them, we'd be happy to take them. Well, the fact is that in honor of this movie, I'm actually uh, playing the voices of all five panelists (laughs) on this podcast. (laughs) And I will tell you that my Mickey Maynard is very lifelike. (laughs) Even more lifelike than Mickey Maynard. You're just... You're you're just trying to slowly progress up to where you become the host Never of the happened. show. Oh, I am the host of the <laughs> show this time. I'm telling you, it's be- becoming the host of this show is just it's a, it's almost impossible. Believe me, I do it every every week. <laughs> so we're talking about Kind Hearts and Coronets, a movie uh, I actually saw for the first time when I was I think uh, maybe a freshman in college or something, oh. and then I don't think I have seen it since, which I had forgotten about until I watched it, uh, and which for me is like going out on a limb because I, I know all the facts and figures and I know about the movie, but I feel like, wait, I remember I liked it. Didn't I? Did I like it? Anyway, uh, you'll, we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> but I want to start with my usual question and find out about everybody else's experience with this movie. Randy, have you seen this movie before and, and what did you think? I have seen it before. It's been quite a while. Uh, you know, I thought that, that if I was ever going to be hanged in prison, I would want to watch this movie right before because, you know, it's clever, it's diverting, and two hours really seems like six. So I think that would be, you know, make time go by really slowly. I thought you were going to say you wanted that outfit in prison, mm-hmm. the smoking jacket, you know, and share it. <laughs> well, that too. That goes without saying. Right. David, how about you? I I went through a whole run of uh, Ealing films and Bolting Brother films and, you know, British satire and comedy from the 40s and 50s back in the late 80s, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s. And some of them I've seen multiple times and some of them I haven't seen since, say, 1992. This is one I haven't seen since 1992. Uh, but Bits and Pieces came back as I was watching it and... Uh, yeah, but it was, it was one of those where it was like, if you're going to watch British comedy, this is one of the ones you have to see. I agree. And it's, it's different than so many other British comedies in a good way, because I'm often not a fan of some British comedies, but we can get, we can get to that. (laughs) Erica, how about you? Is this a new one to you? It was new to me. I had never seen it before, but I was very interested because, uh, 
Ealing Studios, there's a lot of Doctor Who filmed there. That's not one of my Doctor Who facts. That's just the thing. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I knew Alec Guinness, and mm. my spouse was excited to watch it with me because he knew that uh, as a British film being shot at Ealing, there would be a chance to spot Doctor Who actors. Hashtag teaser for at least one of my <laughs> Doctor Who facts. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I hadn't seen it, and it was fine. <laughs> I don't think I'll watch it again, but uh, I, I recognize why it's it's something that is beloved um, and that, that people really like it. I just, I think I am at the point in my life where I am completely over being amused by terrible people doing terrible things for terrible reasons. So that is that is not my, my mm. wheelhouse anymore. I think if I would have seen this when I was in college and like vacuuming up as many old movies as I could, I probably would have loved it and watched it a bunch of times. Uh, these days, I, I I'd take a pass. Well, it it, uh, it it's interesting to have different opinions. <laughs> I think some we probably we we probably vary in our opinions around here. Mickey, how about you? What's your background with this movie? This is my first uh, viewing of this movie. Although I've seen so many clips of Alec Guinness in this movie that it seemed slightly familiar. Um, I didn't have the same reaction. I actually liked it and would watch it again because I missed, you know, you're, you're so caught up in seeing it for the first time that there's probably all kinds of details that you miss. Um, so I would watch it again. Yeah, this movie, it, it's funny because I, my memory of it from so long and long ago was that it was wacky. It's not wacky in the least. And I mean, I guess it's wacky mm-hmm. that one guy plays eight characters, but that's not how it's handled. And it's it's much more drawing room and and focused on class than I remember. I mean, I, th- I think the, yeah, the gimmick of the Alec Guinness in eight parts it just sort of overwhelms your brain if you haven't seen it in a long time. <laughs> and it's really a movie about class and a, a satire of, of English... Uh, class norms, and also just really cutting in places that that don't have to do with people getting killed. Yeah, it's it's very genteel and dry and deadpan, but it is dark mm-hmm. and it is it is very cutting. Um, it's 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 about more than just hey, I'm going to kill my way to the title, uh, which is kind of interesting. Because that's right. all we think about, you know. Oh, it's the eight people. I mean, I remember at some point they were talking about we're gonna we're gonna do a remake with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey can do eight people, <laughs> and that would have been terrible. I found it to be quite ruthless and in a very sort of offhanded way, which is typical sort of English drawing room humor. But he's doing terrible things to these people. <laughs> he puts a bomb in the caviar. You know, it's it's really um, it's it's really dark movie and if they did it in an, any bloodier of a way I think people would recoil from it but because it's so understated somehow it gets a little bit of a pass. Well and most of the people he he kills you don't actually get to know very well which doesn't excuse it if right. you find the darkness of all that murder a problem mm-hmm. but I think it is on purpose I think the movie gives you more uh, it gives you fewer opportunities to go, wait a minute, he just killed that nice old person. I mean, what do we know about the general or the admiral or the, well, I mean, some of them actually have lines, but many of them do not. <laughs> I found it interesting, too, that, right. like, it is, it is you know, very dry British humor. And at the beginning, you know, we, we he's, uh, actually, I, maybe it's because I was watching Robert Osborne beforehand talking about how he kills <laughs> these eight people to become the next Duke. Um, but... I 
you don't know going in that in order to kill all of those people to become the next duke, there is a lot uh, there are a lot of like extra casualties. There are so many people who are just caught in the crossfire. <laughs> sorry about the girl. <laughs> like at the first, and that's the first one. And you're like, well, at least he's a little bit sorry about it. I mean, I, I guess. And then later on, he's willing. Like he he did not crash those ships. That was not him. But he didn't care. But uh, but no, the explosion of the caviar in this restaurant. Like if it was a big enough explosion that like not an atom of him was left or whatever whatever the line was. Uh, that certainly at least his dinner companion, probably the waiter, and several tables around him uh, also died. There's just so much carnage, and it's just, it's not even mentioned. <laughs> it's its very funny. It's its the its the kind of absurdity that you, you find in The Goon Show just a couple years later in Monty Python and, and The Young Ones and Blackadder. And I, I do love the structure of it, that it starts with him in prison. He's recounting all of this and you assume this is why he's in prison. And then you find out that's not why he's in prison. Then he gets out of prison. Then it's very clear that he's going to go back because, well, I mean, we'll get to that. But it is sort of a lovely way of saying he's not going to get away with it. But we're just going to end the movie here. You know, I think there's there is a version, I think, that he actually is hung in. Um, That's the the uh, the one that the they US showed in the version. US. They did a slightly yeah. different version for the U.S. Uh, that has like some other changes shorter. that we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but it, it's interesting because they do that thing that you always have to do where your prota- protagonist is a villain of humanizing him. So he's in prison. You know, he's either done something bad or has been accused of it, and then the rest of the movie is his life unfolding, and you're going to find out what his you know, plan is, but it's going to take a while. First, you're going to meet him as a little kid who's who's lost his father and then who is eventually orphaned and then who has all of this, you know, hard luck. He's not getting the, uh, he's not in the class that he, I suppose, belongs by birth. Uh, and then he becomes this killer. And the, the movie has done a really good job, I think, of getting you on his side to the extent that you can. And so then when he starts, they can. And then when he starts killing people, you're like, oh, right, I forget. He's a bad guy. I don't want to be around him, especially if my name is, if if I'm part of the Duke's family. So I I think interestingly, too, like I, I liked the writing a lot. I was surprised. That's one thing I really didn't remember is just how interestingly written this is. And it is, uh, you know, about class and about manners to some extent. And it seems very British. Uh, But I just, I really enjoyed the writing, not only because it was clever in terms of, you know, the the funny things he says, the funny things he says when he kills people, (laughs) uh, but just in general, I think it's really solid in terms of, I mean, most of it is his voice narration, which could be really annoying if it, number one, wasn't written well, and number two, wasn't delivered well, which I think in both cases it really is. But there's a lot in there about class structure and why people have the positions in society that they do and why they're denied them and what that makes a person feel that they're entitled to do, not even necessarily because they feel like they're entitled to the the distinction or the dukedom, but because their family's been insulted and ridiculed. His his mom wasn't allowed to be buried in the family cemetery, and so that's some something of a justification in his mind for what he's doing. But I just feel like the writing of all of that is handled really well, and there, that, that dryness and that uh, sort of drollness of the whole script 
just really carries you forward and makes you want to keep watching, even though you know he's going to kill some more people. I kind of wish that that the characters, the eight victims, you mentioned that they've been uh, there's not they aren't really well depicted, but I think that kind of takes away from the movie a little bit. That I I feel like. Alec didn't really stretch himself to to be all these characters. I kind of wanted to see more of, have more time to get to know them, and maybe have them be really silly or ridiculous, and and um, let Alec in as really stretch his acting skills. But in this, in this, it seemed like, uh, even though I loved Lady Agatha for the you know two minutes she was on screen, but they they didn't really come alive to me. And and I think they could have come alive in a way that, that makes you happy that they're dead. <laughs> but but that didn't happen. Well, the one that does come alive <laughs> before he dies is the last Duke, who is quite a mean person. Um, that was the whole scene with the man traps. Yes. And he, he we get a sense for his personality. He's, he's definitely not a nice person. And then the, the whole scene where they're down in the dungeon or whatever that is. And he says, I'd never been in a building so lavishly equipped with the instruments of violent death. I mean, <laughs> yes. I kind of think we know, you know, where this is going. And and speaking of the writing, right on top of that is the line, I hadn't realized how ill-adapted to the discreet requirements of 20th century homicide <laughs> that these weapons were. I just, but I love that phrasing. It's... I think the way he kills the people is also calculated in terms of sort of getting you through the fact that there's so much darkness in the film. Like they, because they make it so explicit what a bad dude that the Duke is, and he's literally saying terrible things right before he shoots him. Yeah. And and so instead of putting a bomb in a cav- in caviar and being miles away when it happens, this guy who is the direct reason that he hasn't had his birthright uh, made available to him and who is also a terrible person who has man traps out there to keep people from poaching his stuff. Uh, that's the one he shoots basically point blank. So what? Now let's talk about the, the actors. So I, I always introduce this movie is that's the one where Alec Guinness plays eight parts, which is absolutely true because most people know who Alec, Alec Guinness is, even if it's only from Star Wars, which would be a crime against humanity if that's the only reason you know Alec Guinness, because he is among this great generation of, of British actors. Although I, I read something interesting today, I hadn't really thought about it, that he was more anonymous than a lot of them because he was as not as prepossessing. I mean, he wasn't an Olivier or a Gielgud or a Richardson or one of these sort of bigger-than-life people. He was just this, this really talented talented guy who did amazing parts. Um, but anyway, so the, mo- the movie is mostly thought of as an Alec Guinness vehicle, but our star, of course, is Dennis Price, who's the uh, who's, who's Louis Manzini, who is uh, out to uh, get back his birthright. And I always feel like I have to say birthright in quotes, by the way. I'm, I have to d- deflect for a moment, but because <laughs> but, I just don't like, I, I'm not British. And so to me, like the idea that the big thing in this movie is he needs to get the thing that he was done out of, which is his right to own a castle. Uh, <laughs> that's a little hard. <laughs> but anyway, so Dennis Price is our star. We have a couple of really interesting female roles. We have uh, 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 Valerie Hobson as his eventual wife, 
and then we have uh, Joan Greenwood as uh, his his love in a performance which I, I love her. I I love watching her. I think she's so interesting. I like Dennis Price. Apparently not everybody did. Apparently there was so much praise for Guinness that Price kind of got lost and there were some people who thought he was boring. So I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys think of some of the, the actors in this, aside from Alec. I, I thought Price was lovely. It was just the mm-hmm. right tone for that, I think. Because you don't want someone... You, you, you want someone who is able to be plausibly evil... Uh, but silky smooth about it. You kind of root for him and you kind of hate him and you kind of see where he's coming from and you kind of want him to get caught, but you see how he gets away with everything. Um, And by letting him be sort of that note and letting Guinness just be whatever from scene to scene, um, you, you don't, you, you have a nice balance between the two of them. I liked his performance a lot. I thought it was very typical English sort of gentleman. Interesting thing about this is that he's he's circulating among all of these aristocrats, and you don't hear anyone say that he doesn't belong where he is. I mean, if you think about movies like Howard's End and um, the the character of the young banker, and it's very clear that he isn't quite upper class and obviously is quite poor to be honest but nobody ever says that he doesn't belong nobody ever you know looks askance at him because he's shown up in all of these places but that's the interesting class part and why i i sort of respond as an american thinking okay class is a construct because he is part of this family but this family has to let him in the door and he wants in but there, it's not because he's a he's the gauche outsider who doesn't know how to behave or hold his knife and fork at table i mean every time you see him even before he's you know even when he's a, a, a working in a ladies clothing store he seems he seems very English and proper to me. He seems to know, you know, he knows how to wait on people. He knows how to speak to them. When he interacts with, with one exception, when he, you know, uh, is in the store and he's listening to the conversation of the, uh, the first relative he's going to off. Uh, he at all other times he's completely, you know, respectful and polite and seems to be able to move in the upper class environments that he's in effortlessly, which makes it even more ridiculous that class is such an important uh, aspect of, of English society, not of the movie. I think it actually it makes perfect sense in the movie, and I think the movie is really scrutinizing class in the English sense. But like, I, I guess I, I'm allowing my American hackles to just you know get up a little bit. <laughs> I, I think that this movie has sort of chosen not to grapple with that, that the outsider side of things, in part because I think they, they, they sort of try to gloss over it and paper over it a little bit by like, you know, his mother was raised that way. So she raised him that way. So he, he has the accent. He knows right. how to, to use his, his cutlery. Also, she sent him to the most expensive school that she could uh, she could afford, and they don't say anything else more about it. So you are basically just left to assume he has enough of an education to at least be able to sort of pass in, you know, that like that it didn't ruin all of the work that his mom put in into making him into a colossal snob. So he, I, I feel like the movie could have grappled with that and like dug into that side of things, but I think it would have been less funny. So it's probably a uh, uh, unless they were to make an entirely separate movie that really like, you know, because I feel like that could be funny. But this was more about he is he is already that jerk <laughs> that, that he has been raised. Well, if you think to about be. so I'm going to bring up my first Julian 
Fellows um, reference now. So Gosford Park, um, which predates Downton Abbey and was supposedly one of the inspirations for Downton Abbey. Um, the the spoiler alert: the son of the the aristocrat who gets shot is posing as a servant. He may not even know that he's his son, but he is his son. And he impregnated the housekeeper and then she gave birth to him and he's downstairs. And so he doesn't even try to mix with the people downstairs. He knows his place is below stairs. And that's certainly not the case here. I mean, he he's basically saying, I belong among these people. I deserve more than I'm getting, but I belong among them and now I'm going to circulate among them. And he could just turn his back on the whole thing and go to London and, you know, do something else. But this is his motivation for life, essentially. And I mean it is revenge too. It's it's I mean, yes, his mother has raised him to believe, you know, you you deserve all of these things. So he has he has he definitely has bought that whole hog. But uh, I think, I mean, to me, when I really start thinking about it, I actually get sad because it's like, you know what, he is actually, I think, sort of entitled to something that he didn't get. And that's a family. And yeah, this family sucks. And, you know, it wouldn't have necessarily <laughs> made him turn out any better to be a part of this family. But, you know, I, I have, I, I kind of feel the same way that you do, Shelley, about like being an American and not really understanding like that innate, uh, innate understanding of class that you just sort of grow up with, with when you're living in the UK. And so I just, I, it seems very silly to me. So I don't care about that. But obviously he did and his mother did. But then, you know, the, the one thing that he actually, I think, genuinely was cheated out of uh, was was his family and having family relations and re- relationships. And it was because of their snobbery that did that. Um, but his whole his whole thing is, yeah, he thinks he's entitled to it. But I think it's, it's really... A little bit more the revenge side of things because he didn't actually tip over that into that until he saw his mom, you know, having to be buried as a pauper, which, you know, that is also, you know, a bit of the class classist thing as well. But uh, but I think they, you know, they kind of balance the two of them. So it's it's partially like they're, they're really walking on this fine line of like he's charming enough and urbane and witty enough that you kind of want to root for him, although I mostly did not. Um but at the same time, you know, he's a terrible person doing terrible things. But he's also doing it because he loved his mom and she didn't, you know, deserve what she got. But he's also doing terrible things. So, you know, they, I, think, I feel like they balance that actually pretty well. Yeah. I think so, yeah. too. And, and I, I, yeah, I was wondering in that last scene when he tells the Duke basically why he's going to kill him. I was trying to sort of suss out how much of that as a direct motivation is why he's doing what he's doing because he he's obviously avenging his mother's ill treatment but he has his own motivations as well he's you know and also he's sort of gone on this path like once you've killed one or two and you know where you're going and you start crossing things off of that family tree you feel like you're i guess he feels like he's kind of stuck doing it but i guess i wondered how much of what he was telling the duke at the end about his mother's ill treatment was completely responsible for his his motivation or whether it was just a little bit or whether it was his self-justification because even though he does all these terrible things he does seem to want to 
put himself at a remove. He wants he wants to he wants to kill all the people, but he doesn't really like the idea of doing it. Like I don't think he's particularly yeah. eager to shoot the guy in cold blood, but he's going to do it. That's because he's classy. He's he's got that class in him, so he he's not going to enjoy getting his hands dirty. He'd really probably prefer that somebody else do it for him, but. I did like the bit where he, you know, he, the, the older, I can't remember the, the name of the character who he works for and who, who treats him well and who keeps promoting him and eventually makes him a partner. And of course, in that sort of stolid English way of saying, well, this is the way we have to do it because now you're the only one. For, we're going to make you my private secretary because that's what the job my son would have had. And then we're going to make you my partner because, well, that's what we have to do because you're the, you're the next one in line. But I think it's meant to be seen as as a uh, a kindly uh, relationship, and and uh, 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 he even says, Louis even says, I'm kind of glad he died, so I didn't have to kill him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you can get a little worn out, you know, <laughs> thinking up ways to do murder. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, and that caviar thing bothers me, by the way, because uh, how do we make sure that the bomb does not go off until just the moment when he slices into it? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Well, here's here's my Wild Wild West factoid. Um, the very final Wild Wild West reunion movie, more Wild Wild West, starts off with Jonathan Winters as as an evil genius who is killing off his identical twins. They're not twins because there are like five of them, but uh, he's he kills them off with explosions as the opening of this lighthearted steampunk caper uh it's not very good even if you like wild wild west it's not very good but it's basically ripping off kind hearts and coronets for you know five minutes and but they're all with explosions and they are all as ridiculous as the caviar explosion so we before we get to alec guinness though i do i do want to talk about the the actresses i mentioned a little bit we have joan greenwood as sabella who i love her so much she's she's just she's tremendous i had never seen her before and i her delivery is so interesting and 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 the delivery and the lines match in a way that i find super fascinating I, i i feel like whether those were all her choices or whether she was directed into that i feel like the character and the lines just sort of match up in a way that is delicious and and delightful and then of course he's got valerie hobson as edith who's she's she's just she's playing a role she's she's doing a thing and not particularly notable but i just wanted to call out joan greenwood because i see was so much fun to watch <laughs> yeah i loved her her sort of joie de vivre and her she she's just throws caution to the winds i mean she's really not supposed to be out in the playroom with him at all she's engaged to someone else and then she admits that she's not in love with him and he's boring and she doesn't want to marry him. And I was thinking, well, honey, you know, you're not getting married for love. You're getting married, you know, probably for dynastic reasons. That's that's pretty much your role here. But she really didn't she really didn't want to do it. But, you know, she didn't have a whole lot of choices. That and Louis has this Louis has this great line where he says, uh, they're talking about uh, Lionel, who's, so, who's dull, dull and boring. And Louis says, I must admit, he exhibits the most extraordinary capacity for middle age that I've ever encountered in a young man, <laughs> in a young man of 24. 
Well, and it's about it's about class or dynasty or just money again because she's marrying somebody who has better prospects than uh, Louis. She believes even in Louis, like, what if I told you I was a duke? And she's like, come on. Uh, but they, you know, they carry on an open affair throughout the movie, which is it's uh, the American. When the American recut, there are various things that they took out for for the American audience. They didn't take that out, but there, I think there's one scene. I think it's at the. It might just be. It might be a prison scene toward the end, where uh, some line or other, some couple of lines that basically made it clear that they were having an adulterous affair were cut or changed. Uh, but yeah. you know, you you don't see that too often. Just a sort of a frank depiction of a guy who's he's got one woman on the string because he wants to uh, marry her or at least gain respectability from her, and another on the string that he's attracted to and is clear through it. And it's not the typical thing of well, I'm I love her and I can't give her up. He's having a dalliance with her. Both of them are pretty open and honest about being hot for each other, and there's no sense that they're they're not going to end up together. Thank you, British film. <laughs> I feel like they don't, they definitely are not sort yes. of shackled by the, the morals of uh, the US film rules at the time. Um, and I feel like she's kind of yeah. the, she's the hero of the film, really. I mean, you can tell the moment that he spills his drink on her when she jokingly says, I bet you murdered all those people. She's got him pegged. She knows from that moment uh, that, that this is something that she can eventually hold over him. And, I, I think the fact that it doesn't put her off at all, like they just go to bed right away and uh, and that she's she's still like they really I can't remember exactly what his line is later, but they are definitely made for each other <laughs> as a couple. And I think the fact that she recognizes in him sort of really what he is is why she doesn't hesitate to try to blackmail him. And fool him later and then successfully does, you know, in the end, he's I, I, I as you said before, I think, David, I, I appreciate the twist that you think he's in jail for all of these murders that he is now writing down about. But no, he's in jail for yeah. the one that he didn't commit because she fixed it up oh so nicely and hid the suicide note. And it just I, I think that the uh, the the touch and the twist that she is the architect of his downfall is a, a, is very nice because her performance is wonderful. And there's something about her voice that just was so familiar to me. But even looking through her IMDb, like I, I don't know where I knew it from. But uh, feel but, yeah, the same. Delightful. Like, where does she come from? She's so awesome. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she totally the character <laughs> totally gets away with it at the end. She's not punished at all. Nope. Mm-mm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about Valerie Valerie Hobson because uh, I have a fun fact about her. Uh, she plays uh, Mrs. Uh, Lady Discoin, or is it Mrs. Yeah. Discoin? Uh, and she actually uh, later on was married uh, to a politician, British politician named Profumo. Oh um, no! Kidding. Oh really? John wow. Profumo, the, <laughs> oh my gosh, the Secretary of War in uh, yeah. in the early '60s, and he had an affair with a 19-year-old model named Christine Keeler, right. and this became a huge thing, led to the downfall of the of the uh, uh, the Prime Minister, and then Christine, she uh, she was the 19-year-old model. She had a famous line that I. I heard years ago that somebody asked her, "Well, John Profumo says you never had an affair with, uh, never had an affair with you." And Christine says, "Well, he would say that now, wouldn't he?" 
that's sounds so very British. But uh, well, that's that's in the Crown. There's a the yeah. Perfumo affair is in the Crown because Prince Philip supposedly the back of Prince Philip was in a photograph from that apartment where they all had their little fun. Oh, yeah. And it's not clear if that actually is Prince Philip, and they always denied that it was Prince Philip. But the crown makes it out that it is Prince Philip, which has never been proved. Interesting. But, and that's how it ended up in the crown. And did it uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth give him a talking to and say, don't ever let this kind of thing happen again she kind of forgave him but then i think she sort of frowned you know and that's how she, <laughs> how she handled things basically. meanwhile valerie hobson is at home going this is not right I'm... yeah she, yeah, yeah gwen elizabeth um, said oh yeah and then that was the end of that but uh, <laughs> but from what i was reading that um uh, valerie hobson did stand by her husband and never divorced mm-hmm. him uh so yeah she she uh, she also said, "Oh dear," and then just went on with things. <laughs> well, that's how they are. They they get on with things. Stiff upper lip and all that. Yeah. There's there's also a, a pretty good film from 1989 just called Scandal. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That focuses on it, and she is a character in it. Oh, really? That's oh, cool. yeah. Really? Played, oh, that's really played by Deborah Grant. Okay. Wow. I feel I feel like I have to stop and think about all this for a while. Uh, sorry, we we don't have to do that. Uh, well, let's let's talk about Alec Guinness and his eight parts. This is the as I say when I think back about seeing this film so long ago. This is where in my brain it's wacky and he's like changing from one character to another, and it's it's not that at all. It's very. I mean, a lot of the characters are old British men. So you know, to, to be fair, but they're all very different old Brit, old British men with different uniforms. He does a tremendous job uh, with voice work yeah. in this because they are, yeah, I mean, you can see actors who are just doing the old man voice, but he's got, what, four distinct old man voices? Yes. Um, and he just, and there's, I, I think it's the uh, the uh, vicar who sounds astonishingly like an older Wilfred Hyde White. It's Ooh. uncanny. That's oh, I um, can see that. I hadn't thought of it. Right? But, hmm. It's as I I wasn't looking at the screen at that moment. And I just heard the voice, and I was like, "He didn't sound like that in 1949." I know that. <laughs> and I look up, and it's oh, it's Alec Guinness. Well, that's creepy. Um, it's it's, but yeah, it's kind of tremendous, and and the makeup is good. It for the era, it's one of the few times where someone young is playing old and really convincingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is sort of this little, it's not quite hanging a lantern on it, but it is kind of, you know, uh, when, when Price meets one of the other Guinnesses and he, and he says something and he's like, uh, oh, I, I could have sworn I recognized you. I, I swore I knew your face. And that's just such a nice little, they just go right by it. You don't even have to notice it, but it's a lovely little moment. We should say Guinness is in his mid-30s, which I think makes it a little easier for him to play both. There's one character that's younger than he is, Henry, and the rest of them are at least as old, quite a bit older than, than he is. Uh, and that's not to diminish his achievement by any means. It's just to say, I feel like that would have been easier right. for a 35-year-old man than for a 24-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. Now play eight people who are all older than you, including a woman. T- Timothy Chalamet could do it. <laughs> he could. Absolutely. 
You can do anything. <laughs> so uh, of, of of the eight Guinness uh, characters, the one I definitely wanted to see more is, of is Lady Agatha, yes. and I was very disappointed at how little she's oh, in. But, yeah. but they had that wonderful yeah. line from Louis, I shot an arrow in the air, she fell to earth in Berkeley Square. I know, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> totally took me by surprise because he shoots the arrow and then he just looks back. And, oh, it's so good. So yeah. good. And it's it's kind of the one really slapsticky moment in the yeah, in the movie when the when the balloon sails over London and you know it's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> and it's I think that's the campiest sort of broadest comedy in the whole thing. And then everything kind of tones back down again. But that I was really laughing watching. The, the one laugh that that I really got from it was when um louis and and lady duskoyne are having tea and there's like a kind of a, a bang thud in the background and yes <laughs> yes <laughs> i laughed too i thought did it already happen wait what well it happens yep. and you and no right. one reacts because right. the audience knows what's coming and then it just it's just this poof and no one reacts, well, he and does. the audience doesn't know. He reacts, well, oh, but she doesn't. She just keeps talking. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hears the boom. He jumps a tiny bit when yeah. there's the boom. And then like his the way that he's looking at her is just like, are, are you not going to stop and do anything? <laughs> like, you're just, you're, oh, you're, still, you're still talking. Over okay. there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he has to make up the line about burning leaves. <laughs> yeah, and then you just see the smoke billowing more and more. It's just it's such a wonderful <laughs> right. scene. Oh, I guess we should go check. <laughs> I will say I do like Henry. I like the details of he's a you know, a gentleman who's puttering around as a photographer. He's a right. photography nerd, basically. And he drinks in his shed. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I just really, I enjoyed that character. I think he was the one where, when it became clear that uh, Dennis Price was, when Louis was going to kill him, I was like, oh, that's too bad. I kind of like Henry. I want to know even, about Even him. Louis said the same thing. He was yes. like, oh, it's a shame yes. that my, my acquaintance with him will be so short. <laughs> <laughs> oh, alas. I wanted to mention um, Clive Morton. <laughs> While we're still talking about actors, he played the uh, prison governor. And this is where my first Doctor Who fact comes in. Uh, Clive Morton was also in a Doctor Who serial in the 1970s called The Sea Devils uh, with John Pertwee, the third doctor. And in that, he played a prison governor. <laughs> and <laughs> and oh, that it. prison governor also, he this was an episode with The Master, if you're familiar with the Doctor Who. The Master is a big villain who's been in it for ages. Uh, and yes, this this prison was just to hold The Master. And in that story this prison governor uh was just took far too kindly to his his charge very similar <laughs> to the way that this was Ooh. look I, oh, i'm so sorry that you're going to be hung tomorrow morning and i was just like it, that's oh. a really weird kind of specific typecasting but he does it very well and you know i mean roger delgado is charming it makes yeah sense. exactly just in in a very similar yeah. way steve steven and i were laughing about that and steven just leans over and he goes uh when the uh, Louis writing in his book. He's like, I bet he's watching the Clangers too, because that was what happened in that episode of the Sea Devils. I'm like, mm. reference acknowledged. Yeah, some some of the other <laughs> weird little acting things. Um, at the very end, the reporter who says, ah, "I'd love to to talk to you," uh, is Arthur Lowe, uh, mm-hmm. probably most famous for Dad's Army, and although I saw him first in Bless mm-hmm. Me Father, uh, which was another late '70s sitcom, uh, it's kind of stunning to see him young and thin. But wasn't he pretty? That name is familiar. I feel like he was in a lot of things. Like even in this period, I don't, I don't know him, but he's, I just like he's in a number so of healing like things, whether credited or not. 
Okay. And but yeah, Dad's Army is okay. where he really sort of took off. He did a lot of theater through the sixties yeah. and seventies. He passed away in eighty two, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, Stephen mentioned the Dad's Army yeah. thing as well as soon as the movie was over. And then um, in very totally obscure, I'm watching the end credits, and up came uh, Inspector Burgoyne, played by Eric Messiter. I'm like, why do I know that name? His nephew created the BBC radio show Just a Minute, Ian Messeter. Oh. Oh. Oh, oh really? Great wow. tidbit. That, so that's that one of my great. BBC radio facts. I like that show. Wow. So many Well, I have two, two prison references. So oh. if you look at when he walks into the prison, not his prison cell, but when he walks in and they go by the cells and there's a staircase leading upstairs, it's almost exactly the same set that's used in Downton Abbey when Bates goes to prison. Now, Bates didn't have a cell anything like his cell. (laughs) However, if you look at photos of Al Capone's prison cell in Atlanta, when they they sent him down the river on tax evasion charges, he had a very luxurious looking little cell and apparently not even little. He apparently got all kinds of things put in that cell. He had bookcases. He had a desk. He had a very comfortable bed with a bedspread and that sort of thing. And apparently the photos got out of Al Capone in his luxurious prison cell. And when they sent him to Alcatraz, he didn't have anything like that. Good facts. The prison scene thing is is fascinating because he's he's got all these accoutrements in his cell. He's wearing the the jacket, the quilted jacket, and the whole thing. But then he has two guards <laughs> sitting there with him the whole night. It's like, what does he get? You know, he's he's got all these luxuries and things. Why why do those two guys? And if you're going to sleep, please sleep more quietly, guard he, person. <laughs> he's he's obviously adopt ad, adapted to his uh, higher position quite easily and can you know uh, chastise the little people who are keeping him company the night and, before he gets hanged. And I hanged. gotta say, he has tremendous handwriting considering the circumstances. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed. Anything else on actors? And I know we, we still have some fun facts to, to oh, get through. Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? So mine, I, it's not an actor fact, but it is a fun fact that follows on from the prison thing. It's a it's a castle fact. Uh, and that is that uh, the castle that it was filmed at was Leeds Castle in Kent. It's not actually in Leeds, uh, which was the castle that was used in a Doctor Who serial called The Androids of Tara. Um, so I, Stephen recognized it immediately. He was like, oh my God, that's the castle from The Androids of Tara. And he looked it up and he's like, I was right. So, uh, yep, that was that was a fun thing. I'm and glad I could entertain Stephen <laughs> as well as you. <laughs> anything British and if there's a chance that there's going to be a Doctor Who connection and you got him. That's that's really all you need. It's just so what I need is Elon. British movies from the fifties or sixties, and maybe he'll come on the show. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. yes, he just might. Um, yep. And I did actually find one more Doctor Who connection as I was just reading about the film as we were sitting here. Um, originally, it was uh, Michael Pertwee was supposed to be the or the scriptwriter in in pre production for this film. He's the brother of John Pertwee, who played the Doctor in that episode with Clive Morton. Ah. So there you go. It all comes around. <laughs> All England. I, I don't have a, a <laughs> cast thing, but I have a crew thing, which I didn't tease before. Um, I, I forgot that I had this. Uh, the director of photography, who was behind the, the um, particularly oh, yeah. the shot of the six Alec Guinnesses all in one frame, 
Uh, and you, which is a <laughs> silent movie technique. It's not like something right. amazing that he came up with, but he did a beautiful job with it. Um, that was Douglas Slocum, who went on to be the director of photography on the original The Italian Job and the first three Indiana oh. Jones films. I thought I recognized that name. Yep. <laughs> wow, wow. And I have a, a fact. I looked up the name <laughs> Descoyne, and turns out all the references are to this movie, except there is something called the Descoyne Press. And it is the world's first, first publisher committed to producing only comic and humor novels. And that's hmm. humor with an O-U-R. So this must be... <laughs> Which is the right British way press. to spell it. I mean, Escoin Descoin is a pretty funny name. Descoin yes. on it, so I've, I've never heard that before. And, it's like, and then you then you rhyme it with some other equally obscure name. That, that's yeah. that's pretty good. Going there. Now the other uh, BBC Radio tidbit is that in 2012 they made a an audio sequel to this. I've never heard it. I don't know how good it is, but it's basically uh, Louis's daughter doing the same thing to the next generation. Um. So daughter Louis, by Louis, Louis Bella's daughter, illegitimate daughter, who wants her birthright just yeah, as Louis right. did. And so she does um, the same thing. Also, yeah. David, Broadway musical. Do you know anything about that? Broadway musical, A Gentleman's, Was there a a gentleman's musical? Guide to Love and Murder, which the the reason they had to change the name was because they were using the same novel as the source material. And oh. the uh, copyright holders of the film got wind of it because they started doing workshops under the, the more familiar name and uh, the, the, the film rights holders sued. Uh, there was a whole long drawn out thing. So they just changed the name and went ahead with it. And eventually once it was a hit, it, it won best musical. It won several awards uh, on Broadway and the, the suit was dismissed because yes, it was based on the underlying thing. Although it did borrow from the movie in that Jefferson Mays played all eight of the victims, just like Alec Guinness. Um, and he's known for his one-man show, I Am My Own Wife, in which he played 35 distinct characters. And beautifully. Wow. It's an amazing play. I'll see your eight uh, and raise so. you 35. <laughs> That's right. So, so he was like, eight? Ah, I can do that. I actually have a cast around Walk me. In the park. This is great. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a charming, it's a charming musical. It's fun. And, and the, uh, the art design of both the marketing and the, the staging, beautiful work, beautiful work. So if, if you ever get a chance to look it up, I, I believe it's on Apple music and all the other things. It, but it, it is called A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. It, it's much more recent than I had thought. It's in the 2010, it's in the 10s yeah. sometime, right? It's like yeah. the past 10 years. It's, um. Uh, 2012 okay. and uh, 2015, it did a tour of the U.S. So I, I had no idea until I was reading that today, and I was like, "Oh, that's that is surprising that I had not heard." Anyway, uh, well, I'm happy to descend into to fun facts, unless uh, if we've got other plot <laughs> things we want to talk about, or I'm, you know, we could just pepper with fun facts for as long as we have them. <laughs> so I have another Downton Abbey connection. Um, Ealing Studios. So in Downton Abbey, um, 
the aristocrats live at Highclere Castle, which is, you know, the Downton Abbey, um, the actual castle is called Highclere Castle. All of the downstairs scenes are shot on a soundstage at Ealing Studio. Oh, cool. And so none of the, like, unless they were summoned upstairs, none of the servants ever got to do scenes at Highclere Castle. They did something like 80% of their scenes at Ealing. And so if you had a scene where they were preparing things in the kitchen and they were running things up the stairs to the dining room, they just hit a door (laughs) at the top of the stairs. And they never got there. I guess they had cut And they never, and then they had to get in buses and That's you know hilarious. drive across oh. England to get to Highclere Castle to come out of the Green Bay store and go into the <laughs> dining room. And so, anytime you see anybody go up the stairs, you know you can just assume they, they put on cut. their coat, went home and for the day. Five days later, <laughs> finished finished the scene. But I always thought that was so funny mm. that you know they had all these dining room scenes and. You know, everybody else, Daisy and the maids and the, you know, the evil, the evil butler and all that. They all got stuck at Ealing. In a I think that's stage. fitting for an evil butler to be stuck on a soundstage. <laughs> How much experience do you guys have with other Ealing films? Because I confess I haven't seen, I might have seen one other, but I know the Ealing comedies are so uh, well regarded. This pr- probably being the best known of the lot, but there's the Lady Killers and there, there are a couple of others that are usually highly ranked when we talk about Ealing comedies of this era. Have, have you guys experienced those and how do they compare? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, The Lavender Hill Mob, The Lady Killers, Passport to Pimlico, mm-hmm. which is it's it's kind of a, a lovely little political satire where the, the town of Pimlico uh, decides it's going to secede from the rest of England. And so they have to set up diplomatic relations and all this. Um, uh, oh, 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 what is it? The uh, the man in the white suit? Is I think that, Dennis I mean, Price is in that getting, too. Yes, the man in the white suit. Uh, There's the something of a stock C. company with Ealing Studios. Folk. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, Alec Guinness is in several of them. Um, they also made Dead of Night. The oh yeah, yeah, yeah! That's totally, right. totally atypical for them. Really, we did that yes, last we did. year. We didn't did that for Halloween. Yeah. This is the movie that made Alec Guinness an international star, as they say. Like he had been doing theater as as a, many of the English actors of his generation had, and this is a movie. Where, and, and this is in that Robert Osborne segment uh, from before, from a TCM airing of. Uh, kind Hearts and Coronets, where he says it was difficult for somebody who hadn't really made Hollywood movies to become the kind of star that Alec Guinness became because of this movie. And of course, eventually he's going to be doing, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai and other, you know, Hollywood facing movies. But, you know, at this point, he's, as as are all the other actors in this movie, you know, primarily known in England, but this movie kind of is a breakout star role for him. It's not a Doctor Who connection particularly, <laughs> but in the late 50s, uh, the BBC was doing uh, Quatermass and the Pit, which had scenes that it couldn't film in its studio. They filmed all of those at Ealing. So basically, anytime you see the pit. I think Ealing is just a good place to film stuff is what I'm getting out of this. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, but no videotape. No. Oh, really? They, okay. They, they actually banned. They, they, yeah, videotape cameras were not allowed. I wow. Think, so it made uh, production a little difficult sometimes mm. for doctors. They made the singing detective there. If you get the Criterion uh, DVD Blu-ray of Kind Hearts and Coronets, it's a two-disc set. It includes a feature-length BBC documentary on the history of Ealing Studios. And it also oh, wow. has the separate American ending. Ah, yes. We need to talk filmed, about uh, We need to yes. talk about that. I didn't even know it existed mm-hmm. until like, I got here, so I'm really excited to hear you guys tell me about this. So uh, oh, basically yeah. it was about... It was about the production code, and some of it was about the the adulterous relationship between Sabella and Louis, and that you sort of understand and you sort of go you shrug. But the other was the use of one unfortunate word, which surprisingly, yes. uh, yeah. the N word was in this movie in one instance. They're doing the eeny meeny miny mo rhyme, catch a N word, and they that was in the English version. And surprisingly to me, anyway. Uh, they changed that for the American release, and it's Catch a Sailor by the Toe, which is not a version of that I've ever heard. I've heard other things <laughs> yeah. substituted for that unfortunate word. Uh, but I, the first time Dennis Price said it, I went, Ugh! and the, I think I think the word is uttered maybe three times, and it's like, that's three too many, and I, it, by the third time, I was like, stop yeah. it, just stop! Uh, it's, it's yeah, a not-so-fun Doctor Who fact is that same rhyme appears in a classic episode of Doctor Who from the 60s. That is unfortunate. Which was possibly shot in Ealing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Agatha Christie's, uh, the American title was Ten Little Indians. <coughs> and that was changed yeah. from Ten Little N-Word. In yeah, England. that's another and Ealing I, movie, Ten Little Indians. Really? And now it had to become... And then there were none. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the version that we saw, what happens is that Dennis Price has been in jail for the murder, which he did not commit, of Sabella's husband, Lionel, the most boring young man in the world. Uh, He didn't commit that murder. He (laughs) killed himself, but Sabella hid the suicide note. Uh, Then uh, Mm -hmm. because she has agreed, because the suicide note has come back, uh, he is let out of prison, but what he's done is he's left his memoirs on the table. So clearly, he's going to go back to prison because of which is in his entire confession. This whole movie, uh, but in America, they needed to put a nice bow on it, so they have to show the memoirs being found, so that then he can be taken back to prison. Which is just, and even so, ah. the American version is six minutes shorter than the British version. So I don't know how all that worked, but <laughs> that's the ending. Basically, you want justice? We're going to well, show you justice. <laughs> and and they did take out a little bit of uh, making it clear that they've had an adulterous affair. They took a little, just little. Yeah, and like I say, I think that, that converse. I think that was in the conversation that they have when she visits him at prison. And I can't remember the lines, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, that was the specific request of the production code folk in America was like, let's make it, let's obscure the fact that they were having adulterous relationships. Well, I did want to emphasize the fact that I've done all the voices in this episode, and that's why that's why you'll never see the five of us in the same Zoom together. True enough. That's, true. that's why we do audio it's Zoom only. It makes it easier. They filmed Shaun easier. of the Dead there. 
I, I think it could. we could be here all night if we ran a list of things they made at Ealing Studios. Let's just night at Soho. stipulate that many English things have been made at many, Ealing Studios and continue to be. <laughs> Notting Hill. Well, friends, thanks so much for being with me for this yeah. discussion of kind hearts and coronets. This is the penultimate episode of the fall-winter season of Lions, Towers, and Shields. We'll be back next week with one more episode, which is our holiday show. It happened on Fifth Avenue. And then we will go away for a couple of months uh, while we think about what to do in the spring. The first episode coming back will be in early March. Uh, but fret not, there are many back catalog episodes that you can listen to if you, by some chance, missed one. Apparently, Randy is doing all the voices for all of them. Uh, you can <laughs> yes. catch up with us at theincomparable.com slash LTS. You can subscribe to the show. You can find all of our socials and an email address. But I'll just give those to you right now. Go to Lion Tower Shield because S's cost extra. Still on X, but hanging on by a thread, but we're available over on Mastodon. And you can also write to us at lts at theincomparable.com. See you next week. Bye now.